Guardian Unlimited. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Roger Berry. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, sir. Before listening to my engagements, I'm again sure the whole House will wish to join with me in sending our condolences to the family and friends of Warrant Officer Class 2 Michael Smith of 2-9 Commander Regiment Royal Artillery, who was killed in Afghanistan last Thursday. He again was part of the mission in Sangan um, to protect, protect the project um, of the Kajaki Dam, and once again we pay tribute to his heroism, his sacrifice, and the work being done by him and his colleagues in Afghanistan. Mr. Speaker, so this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I'll have further such meetings later today. Mr. Speaker, may I associate myself with my right honourable friend's expression of, of condolence? Um, my right honourable friend has made a huge contribution to the peace process in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Following uh, the election last week, does he agree with me that what the people of Northern Ireland want is for their interests to be put first and for local politicians to get on with the business of forming a government. Will he confirm that the deadline for devolved uh, government in Northern Ireland remains March the 26th and that that deadline will not change? Yeah. Well, that deadline, as my honourable friend uh, knows, is set out in, in the legislation, but I would like to um, pay tribute to uh, the leaders of all the political parties, including those in this House who have uh, played such a prominent part in the politics of Northern Ireland over these past few years. And I would also say to my honourable friend um, that one significant thing, in addition to all the, the other things that are happening in Northern Ireland, was the publication of the employment figures today, which showed that over the past few years there have been 100,000 extra jobs in Northern Ireland and a reduction of 30,000 in the number of unemployed. And I think what was fascinating about the uh, election from all accounts in Northern Ireland was that it were the issues, the bread and butter issues of the water charges and health and education, the local economy that were prominent on the doorstep. And I think that in itself uh, says a great deal about the modern face of Northern Ireland. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Warrant Officer Michael Smith, killed in Afghanistan last Thursday. Replacing Britain's independent nuclear deterrent is in the national interest. A submarine-based alternative is the right answer, and the decision needs to be taken now. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that in a dangerous and uncertain world, unilateral nuclear disarmament has never been and will never be the right answer? Well, precisely uh, for the reasons that I gave when I made my statement to the House, I think it's right that we take the decision uh, now to begin work on replacing um, the Trident nuclear submarines. I think that is essential for our security in an uncertain world. And I believe that it is important that we recognize that although it is impossible to predict the future, the one thing, as I said in my statement, that, that is certain is the unpredictability of it. And for that reason, I think it's sensible that we take this decision today. Come on. I agree with the Prime Minister. Does he also agree that replacing Trident meets both the spirit and the letter of our international treaty obligations? Will he confirm that the last Conservative government cut the number of warheads, his government cut the number of warheads, and there will be further reductions in the future? As a result, does he agree with me that the argument against replacing Trident on the basis of non-proliferation simply doesn't stack up? 
we are very uh, proud of the, the record we have in this area um, and making sure that we reduce the number of warheads as important as we have set out. It's also the case that it may be possible actually to reduce the number of submarines, although that is a decision that will have to be taken at a later time. And yes, of course, it's important that we fully conform with our non-proliferation treaty obligations and we're doing so. And I think what is possible is for us to continue to play our full part under the non-proliferation treaty in the multilateral negotiations that I hope will take place over the years to come so that the world becomes a safer place with fewer nuclear weapons. But that is something that I think we are best able to achieve if we maintain our nuclear deterrent. We are, we are discussing this now because the system could take around 17 years to put in place. So the timing is right, the legality is clear, and maintaining the deterrent is in our national interest. Because the Prime Minister has the support of the Conservative Party, we can work together in the national interest. Will he tell us clearly that tonight's vote is the vote and there's no going back after tonight's vote? Will he also confirm that he will stand by his part policy, he will stand by his policy, and he will not appease those in his own party or the Liberal Democrats who simply want to run away from a tough decision? Well, uh, it's precisely because I believe this decision has to be taken now um, that we've got the vote today in the House of Commons. And I entirely understand why people may want to put off this decision, but the fact is that if we want to get parliamentary approval, for the work that has to begin now on the concept and design phase of this. Of course, um, the actual contracts for the design and construction are let at a later time, but it's today that we need to take the decision for the concept and design stage of this. And if we want to get proper parliamentary authorization for this, this decision has to be taken now. I entirely understand, incidentally, and respect the views of people who hold a different opinion on this issue, but I have been, uh, I think, pretty clear and pretty firm on it from the very beginning, and I think we should continue to be so. Marshall. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is my right honourable friend aware of the petition submitted to Downing Street seeking a posthumous knighthood for the late Jock Steen in recognition of his achievements as the manager of Dunfermline, Celtic and Scotland. As, as this is the 40th anniversary of Celtic and Steen winning the European Cup, the first British team to do so, will he give serious consideration to giving approval for this petition to go online as soon as possible? Th those uh, decisions uh, aren't actually uh, taken by myself and I, I know that the rules governing um, posthumous awards are very complex, but I would certainly say to my honourable friend that uh, Jock Steen was a, a great manager, a great Scot, and someone who contributed enormously to football and to civic society in Scotland. Sir Mingus Campbell. I join the Prime Minister in his expressions of sympathy and condolence. And I can't help remembering that the last time the right honourable gentleman and the Prime Minister voted together in the same lobby on an issue of national interest, it was over in Iraq. a very comforting precedent. Does the Prime Minister accept that the most immediate nuclear threat is from other countries acquiring nuclear weapons? What then is going to be the role played by his government at the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Review Conference in 2010? We will continue uh, to play a positive role on this issue, but I have to say to the right honourable gentleman, there is absolutely no evidence whatever that if Britain now renounced its independent nuclear deterrent, that would improve the, the, the prospects of getting multilateral disarmament. On the contrary, I think the reverse is the case. 
and I have to say to him also that although, of course, I understand why he wants to put this decision off, as I understand it, that is his position, the fact is the 17-year programme is what is advised to us by the experts that advise us on this issue, and I recommend that he reads the, um, the evidence to the Select Committee by Rear Admiral Matthews on this very point. So the 17 years is clear. That works back from 2024. That means 2007. That means we have to take the decision now if we want parliamentary approval for this concept and design phase. And I'm sure if we did not seek parliamentary approval but continued with the work on the concept and design phase, he would be standing up there and asking me why I hadn't sought parliamentary approval. Mr. Shirley accepts that a hasty decision to replace Trident is bound to undermine our ability to have influence at the conference in 2010. And shouldn't we not now be offering to reduce the number of warheads on Trident in order to give a lead to others? We are set to reduce the number of warheads, but I'm afraid it really is absurd to say that we can somehow put off the question of whether we take a decision now for this concept and design phase. And the reason I say that's absurd is that obviously we have to take the advice of the experts, the Director General who's in charge of this and the Ministry of Defence and the other experts who say to us it's a 17-year programme. It has therefore to begin now if we want to maintain the nuclear deterrent. We can't put this decision off, therefore. We have to take it now. And I do recall a few days ago, he said on this issue, I will not sit on the fence. <laughs> I'm afraid on the fence is exactly where he is. And as I think he'll find, it's not a very comfortable place to be. Thank you, Royal. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does the Prime Minister show my shock and horror of the stories in the Sunday newspapers about the treatment of injured soldiers? Will he ensure that those hospitals will be fit for purpose and guarantee that those heroes who come back injured will have the correct treatment and aftercare that they deserve? I totally agree with what my honourable friend says. And um, the stories that were in the, in the Sunday newspapers, many of those stories were from cases of some months ago, all of which we investigated and looked into. But I want to say this on behalf of the staff and particularly the staff of the Medical Defence Services at Selly Oak Hospital and those that work elsewhere in our armed forces. They do a superb job for our armed forces. It is simply not true that the National Health Service staff that work alongside them do not give excellent care to those who are injured. They do give excellent care, and I can um, tell him from the discussions I've had with people who are working at that hospital and the visits that I, I have done uh, both to that facility and other facilities for, for handling um, the injured soldiers that there is an immense amount of praise that never gets any publicity for the staff that work there and the care that they give. And I think when these stories appear, we should at least balance it up with a fairer and more, I think, more true picture of what is actually happening. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I press him a little further on the point raised by the Honourable Member for Chorley? As the Prime Minister says, 
as the Prime Minister says, anyone who's been to the Birmingham Selly Oak Hospital is hugely impressed by the work that the doctors and the nurses do. I've seen it for myself. It is impressive. But surely what matters is not just the quality of care, but the environment in which our soldiers are cared for. Isn't it the case that when soldiers are injured in battle one day and then in a British hospital the next day, it is easier for them if they're surrounded by soldiers who've been through what they went through? I know that he's made progress in getting a military managed ward, but can he tell us when he expects to have a dedicated military facility in the hospital? Actually, the commitment is precisely to have a military-managed ward, and there is such a ward, and has been since uh, December of last year. And the reason why it's important to express it in that way is that what, what will happen in hospitals like Celio, where there are very, very serious cases that are brought there, is that they need the advantage of having the full range of NHS facilities and the experts there. And it's precisely for that reason that the last Conservative government actually rightly took the decision to phase out the military hospitals and replace them um, with facilities for the armed forces within the NHS. But precisely what he is saying, and I totally agree, it is important that, that those that are injured in war are then surrounded by their own comrades and they have their, their own sense of, of, of feeling and sentiment amongst them. That is precisely what is happening now. And I got um, the, most, the, the latest report just a couple of days ago from that hospital, and I think if either he or I were to visit it again, we would find that the facilities offered to people are very good. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The point I'm making is this. There is a difference between a military-managed ward and a dedicated military ward. That is the point. This is important. General Sir Richard Dannett said yesterday, he said this. He said, I have every confidence that in three years' time, that's when the hospital is rebuilt, in three years' time we'll have not just a military-managed ward, but effectively a dedicated military ward where our people will be exclusively, exclusively attended to. If it's right for three years' time, why can't we do more, more quickly? As I understand it, the point, is, the point is this, that there may be beds within some of these wards where the level of care is so intensive and high and where you may have anything between six and eight consultants looking after a particular person. But if, for example, there are spare beds within that ward and the staff are required to look after a civilian patient, it would be wrong to say that that bed could not be used for a civilian patient and that would also be a very inefficient use of resources. But the whole point about it is to create the circumstances in which our armed forces who are injured are, A, given the best and highest possible care, and B, um, that they, they have that care, surrounded by other soldiers and members of the armed forces. And um, General Sir, Sir Richard Dannett was saying the other day that he, having visited those facilities, was actually satisfied that they were doing the very best for our armed forces. David Kidney. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does my right honourable friend accept that millions of tenants will benefit over time from this week's introduction of the first National Tenancy Deposit Scheme? Will he join me in congratulating all those who have campaigned long and hard for this important consumer protection measure, including Citizens Advice Bureau, Shelter and the National Union of Students? And will he remember to chalk this up as yet another labour achievement? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I should say to my honourable friend that I'm very happy to welcome the commencement of the tenant uh, deposit scheme on the 6th of April, and it represents this an end to 
the scandal of a small minority of unscrupulous landlords refusing to return rent deposits left with them by short-term tenants. I also would say to him that um, the work that's been done by Shelter and the Citizens Advice Bureau and the National Union of Students also has been very important in doing this, and it's good news for vulnerable tenants and for students everywhere. Owen Patterson. Tar Seaver has been deemed cost-effective for certain lung cancers in many European countries and North America, but only for British taxpayers with Scottish addresses. My constituent, Richard Berman, has paid his taxes to the British Treasury all his life, but faces a premature death unless he moves to Scotland. Will the Prime Minister please agree to meet him with his specialists to discuss this? What I would say to him is that the, the decisions on whether drugs should be available or not are taken by NICE. We believe this to be the right procedure. I'm very happy, without, I have to say, any uh, commitment for a meeting, I'm afraid, but I'm happy to look into the case um, that he draws attention to, and I will correspond with him about it. Barry Shearman. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I ask my right honourable friend, does he agree with me, if we're going to stop the environmental degradation of our planet, Hadn't we better give ownership of this question and this uh, campaign uh, to the ordinary citizen? Wouldn't it be the greatest mistake if we thought that we could do everything by government dictate top down? Well, I, I do agree uh, with my own friend. Yes, I think what is important is that we have action that is available to the individual citizen, and the Energy White Paper will detail some of the proposals for that. Um, that are coming up shortly. Secondly, what is important is that we get international agreement within Europe and then at the G8 plus 5. And finally, it is obviously important, my honourable friend is absolutely right, that we have practical policy making in this area. Um, And that is why I believe the proposals that we have put forward this week are proposals that give us a realistic chance of meeting very ambitious targets and are certainly preferable to the proposals put forward by the party opposite. Mark Hunter. Is the Prime Minister aware of the extent of the funding crisis faced by Greater Manchester Police, which has already seen the loss of some 216 officers and which, according to the Labour-run Police Authority, faces a financial shortfall of up to £27 million over the next two years? And if he is aware of it, could he explain to the House what he's doing to help? Yes. My understanding is that actually the police in Greater Manchester and elsewhere are getting um, increases, significant increases in the amount of funding available, but he will also know that the chief police officers came to us and asked for greater flexibility in how this money is used. And actually I think I'm right in saying that there have been almost a thousand extra police officers in Greater Manchester since we came to office. In addition to that, of course, there are community support officers, but it was in response to that request from the chief police officers that we now give them greater flexibility in how they use their funding. The Prime Minister must be aware of the tragic situation that is unfolding in Sri Lanka, where government and Tamil forces have been fighting, displacing hundreds of thousands of people and claiming 4,000 lives in the last 15 months. Because of our very close historical links with Sri Lanka, could he use his good offices in order to persuade all the parties and factions to recommit to the agreement that was made in 2002, brokered by the Norwegian government, so that the escalation in violence can be curtailed and so that peace and tranquility can be returned to this beautiful island. Well, the uh, issue that my honourable friend um, raises is a very serious and important one. I can assure him we are in touch 
um, at the present time with the International Red Cross and with the other United Nations agencies. And he's right also in saying that the Norwegian authorities have played a significant part in trying to, to put together a, a peace a process in Sri Lanka. I mean, I totally understand the difficulties the government faces at the present time, and it is a, a very, very challenging situation. We have said to them well, we, we will do all that we can to help, but I think he is right in saying that the only way, the real, only realistic way we're going to get a solution here is if we come back to that 2002 agreement and make sure it's implemented. But I know he will also agree with me that terrorism and violence can never be the way to achieve a negotiated solution. Is the Prime Minister aware that my constituents have been waiting two years for the approval of a new community hospital in Braintree? Progress has been stalled as the buck has been passed back and forth between the Primary Care Trust and the Strategic Health Authority. Will the Prime Minister agree to meet with me to discuss how we can make progress on this project? Um, I mean, I am perfectly prepared to meet with him about it, actually, uh, because it's obviously a serious issue for, for um, Mid-Essex and for his constituency. But I have to say to him that he will be aware that at the same time as these proposals on the community hospital are being discussed, there is also the discussion on what will be a huge multi-million pound investment um, by the government in, in, uh, in Brookfield Hospital. And over the past few years, again, he will know there's been a huge investment in the local NHS infrastructure. And so I'm very happy to meet with him in order to talk how we can get the benefits of this investment in his constituency and elsewhere in Essex. But I know he would be the first to say the NHS has improved considerably in the last few years. John Denham. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does my right honourable friend understand that tonight's motion on Trident effectively commits this country to the possession of an independent nuclear weapons system for the, next, for the best part of the next 45 years? without this House being guaranteed any future opportunity to consider whether it remains the best strategy. Does my right honourable friend understand that there are many of us who accept the need to ensure our ability to replace the Trident system, but who nonetheless believe that in a fast-changing world we should be guaranteed, as this House, the chance to revisit that decision at an appropriate point in the future? Let me say, uh, first of all, that, that uh, I entirely understand the point that my right honourable friend is making, and um, it, it is, if I may uh, put it like this, um, the, what I would describe as the reasonable end of the, uh, um, the, the opposition to what the, the government is doing. But let me try and explain why I think we've still got to take this decision today. It's, it's absolutely right, of course, that this Parliament can't bind the decisions of a future Parliament. Um, and it's always open to come back uh, and look at these issues. And he, of course, is absolutely right in saying that when you get to the gateway stage, that's between 2012 and 2014, where you actually let the main contracts for the design and construction, at that point in time, of course, it's always open to Parliament to, to, to take a decision. However, the reason why I believe we have to take this decision today is that if we don't start this process now, we will not be in the position where, should we want to continue with the nuclear deterrent in 2012-2014, we will be able to do so. And therefore, the importance of taking this decision, as I say, the real dilemma is this. We decided, um, rightly or wrongly, but I think rightly, that we should seek parliamentary approval, even for the design and concept stage. Now, when we came to the, the previous Trident uh, nuclear submarine, 
actually, it was only at a later stage that parliamentary approval was sought. Now, that was much criticised at the time. So we decided, at the very beginning of this process, we should seek parliamentary approval. Of course, it's a statement of fact um, that that gateway takes place at a later stage and in a later parliament. But if we want to spend at least that more limited sum of money now on the concept and design stage, we have to take a decision now. Angus McNeil. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Cash for peerages is probably not the biggest disaster of this right honourable gentleman's tenure. Iraq is... Order. The House will understand it's important that I hear what this honourable gentleman's got to say. The honourable gentleman... Thank you, Mr Speaker. As I was saying, cash for peerages is probably not the biggest disaster of the right honourable gentleman's tenure. Iraq is. We've heard concerns already of poor medical treatment for soldiers, lack of body armour, and delays in coroner's inquests. Indeed, some of my own constituents in Stornoway have to pay council tax while they're in Iraq. But is the right honourable gentleman aware that some soldiers in Iraq are having their families to send them food parcels because of lack of 24-hour canteen facilities? Why is this Prime Minister, who is so cavalier in taking this country to Iraq, failing in his duty of care to these soldiers? I simply dispute that we are failing in our duty of care towards our soldiers. And our soldiers are doing a magnificent job in Iraq. They're doing a necessary job for our security and the security of the wider world. And I have to say, even though the Honourable Gentleman and I may disagree strongly uh, over the issue of Iraq, I think it's completely wrong for people to undermine the morale of our armed forces by suggesting we are deliberately not giving them the equipment they need or the care they need when injured. It simply is not true, and it is not right that we say it. What a Moffat. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The only talk in Crawley for years was the closure of Crawley Hospital. Now, under new management, under the PCT, there's over £20 million worth of investment. There's a new urgent treatment centre just opening and new services every day. Would my right honourable friend come and see for himself? <laughs> well, I, I would be delighted to do that. And I remember, I rem well, I remember before the last election when the Conservative Party was saying that this would never happen and it wouldn't be done. It has been done. And later today, we will actually be launching the results too of the coronary disease programme of the government over the past few years, which indicates that since we came to office, over 100,000 lives have been saved as a result of investment and reform. And the point is that every bit of that investment and reform, including in my honourable friend's constituency, has been opposed by the party opposite. Will the Prime Minister tell the House uh, what message he can give to the 7,000 families on Stockport Council's waiting list? When does he intend them to have a decent home? It is important, of course, that we invest more in social housing. We are doing that. And as a result of the investment, we are not merely helping people with the refurbishment of their homes, but also building new homes as well. But I have to say to the Honourable Gentleman, there will always be a limit on the resources we are able to spend. But this government has put literally £2 billion into council and social housing over the past few years, and we intend to put hundreds of millions more in the next few. Desmond Turner. Speaker, I'm very glad that my right honourable friend shares my joy in the beginning of the new National Tenancy Deposit Scheme. That will help thousands of my constituents. But I'm sure he's also aware that 
Withholding deposits is not the only way that letting agents have of fleecing vulnerable tenants. Will he therefore consider legislating to regulate letting agents? Well, we of course always keep these issues under review, and I'm very happy to look at the issues that my honourable friend uh, has raised. But I would agree with him certainly that the tenancy deposit scheme is a very good first step in giving protection to tenants. So, John Butterfield. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Prime Minister will probably know that the police estimate that the largest ever mass lobby of Parliament was a few weeks ago when 1,200 blind people came here to call for a higher rate of mobility allowance. He may also have noticed that more than half the backbenchers in this House have now signed my early day motion to that effect. Could he perhaps have a word with his right honourable friend, the honourable mem member for uh, Kirkcaldy and Cowdenbeath, to suggest that at a cost of £50 million it might be something he could include in his forthcoming budget and thereby enhance his reputation as a humane and caring Chancellor. Well, um, first of all, let me say that we have, uh, we have obviously increased um, the, the payments for mobility allowance over the past few years. I'm sure my right honourable friend will have heard uh, what the honourable gentleman has said, and I will study carefully the early day motion. I can give no commitments at this stage, but we will take into account what he says. Well, is, uh, is my right honourable friend aware of the great success that our overseas drugs liaison officers have had with seizures of cocaine in Latin America working with the authorities in those countries? But can I tell him that we could prevent much more? Uh, cocaine and all the misery it brings from ending up on the streets of this country if we invested in more of these drugs offices. Would my honourable friend look into this personally because tackling uh, the source is the most effective way of combating drug trafficking? He, he, is, uh, he is, is he's absolutely right in saying that, um, that the liaison officers do a fantastic job and actually it is an example too of their, li their liaison cooperation between the different services. Um, and so, in fact, what they're doing now is, is getting drug seizures way above what, what used to happen. And I entirely agree with what he says. I'm very happy to look into what more that we can do. Um, but obviously, the other measures we're taking to protect our borders will indeed play a part as well. Gregory Campbell. What progress is the Prime Minister making in uh, delivering the outstanding issues, many of which have been supplied by my party to himself and his officials, issues that are essential for the delivery of devolution at some point in the very near future? Well, as he knows, um, obviously we, we are in receipt of the, the proposals that have been put forward by his party. Um, my right honourable friend is meeting the representatives' party. I will do the same. And we will honour the commitments that we have given, and we entirely understand why those proposals are an important part of the overall package to get devolution back up and running in Northern Ireland. Uh, well, my, I'm sure my right honourable friend is aware that over the last decade the number of uh, people killed in road accidents have declined in the United Kingdom. But is he aware that in the last five years there's been a very alarming increase in the number of young drivers killed, very often with young passengers as well? Will he have discussions with the Secretary of State to find out why this is happening and will he come forward with proposals to stem this uh, tragic loss of life? My old friend is right on, on both points. First of all, there has been really quite a dramatic drop in the number of deaths um, as a result of uh, the various measures that have been taken over these past few years. And actually, it's, it's sometimes worth just pointing out that I think that the savings in lives, particularly of young children, 
um, as a result of some of the road measures that have been taken, run into you know, many hundreds of, of young people. Um, however, he's also right, this is a very specific problem that has arisen, and I can tell him discussions are already underway in government as to what we can do about it, and in particular to make sure that where there are young drivers who may be neither stolen vehicles or uninsured vehicles, we're able to get sight of that and deal with it far more quickly than is the case at present. Order. A point of order. Guardian Unlimited.